Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on things like phenomenology and existentialism and hermeneutics. Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a writer. I'm sort of a television writer, although I'm currently on strike, and I have a PhD in philosophy. Okay, and this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, which is a podcast in which we think about terrifying questions, unsettling questions, reflect on them and talk about them, and try to come to a place of equanimity and courage. That's great. So we had been talking about a couple different questions, Taylor and I, and um, we had been thinking about asking some kind of questions about whether people can be monsters, and I thought that was a good one, but I also thought it was a slightly frivolous one. and. Uh, Taylor doesn't know this, but I'm going to say it now. So this morning, I went to the park with my family, and I scattered my parents' ashes. And my parents' ashes had been in our family for about five years, and they were in my brother's house in the basement, and I didn't feel good about that. So I went and I drove out during the pandemic, and I got them, and I brought them back. And then they were in sort of the place where we have dinner, like my dining room, under a picture of my parents. And then my wife, Raduka, said, well, this seems inappropriate. I don't think we should be like drinking with our friends with your parents' ashes right there. And I didn't know what to do. And then I was thinking, well, should I pay money to Forest Lawn to have them in a drawer somewhere? But that seemed absurd somehow. I didn't really believe in it. And my father had been no help because he said that when he died, he wanted to be put out with the garbage. Um, <laughs> and this struck me as uh, illegal, but also I just didn't <laughs> feel right about it. Um, so we went out this morning at seven six thirty in the morning and we went to uh, Franklin Canyon Park and, you know, we hiked a little bit and we scattered the ashes and I had some local indigenous wildflower seeds that I mixed in with them and poured some water and uh, we said Kaddish and we played some music that was important to my dad and to my mom and then we came back. Hmm. So I, I, I'm sort of in a more serious mood this morning mm -hmm. and that's why I wanted to have a more kind of meditative, serious question. Good. And you had a question which, which I thought was pretty meditative. What's the question? Right. So the question, and I didn't know any of that. Um, my condolences l belatedly. Thank you. Um, and yeah. it was, sounds like a beautiful and hopefully restorative thing you did. Yeah, thank you. So the question is, is being unintelligible? Is being unintelligible. And we were thinking maybe it would be, is existence unintelligible, which sounds like it means human existence, and that's part of what we're talking about. But it's also more broadly... Is the being of anything something we can understand, or is it something we'll never understand, or something you can't, in principle, understand? That's the question. So this question appealed to me this morning, mm -hmm. because I was sort of, I was looking at those white ashes that I was pouring out, mm -hmm. and I was looking at the sky, and I was thinking about my mom, I was thinking about my dad, and to me, it, it sort of made me think about this question that Heidegger raises and that you talk about in this very good article that I recommend. What's the name of your article about existentialism? And That one is called Existentialism as Anti-Rationalism. Existentialism as Anti-Rationalism by Taylor Carman, which is an article I really liked, and it means a lot to me. Thank you. And I thought, well, well that is an interesting question. What those ashes are, and the sky is, and my parents are, or they were, and is there something to be said about what it means for something to be? And, and that's a related question to this, is being intelligible, right? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, we do understand being in a kind of ordinary way, like, are there any apples on the counter? Yes or no, you get it. There's even some evidence that some other primates like monkeys get something like that in a primitive way, and maybe other animals don't. But the question like, were there any parents in the car when we were driving the ashes over there? Do we understand that? Ah, uh, maybe not, right, because I think when it comes to the dead and the living, we're running up against what it means to be a human being. Does it mean to be alive, or does it mean to be physically present, or does it mean to be in somebody's memory, or... And sometimes people try to put this all in terms of the human, right? Mm -hmm. Because they sort of say, well, what's the difference between... Uh, a scientific theory that's true and a scientific theory that isn't true. Well, the sun exists, and let's assume that we, are, most of our listeners, will agree that the guy dragging the sun on a chariot he doesn't exist. Right. But then people will say, well, he exists as a thought in people's minds. Yeah. Uh, so the sort of ultimate buck stops where the buck stops, it's either a thing or it's a thought in people's minds. And if it's neither of those, it isn't. Is, is that, is that <laughs> this, the modern view? Oh, man, this is a huge conundrum. 
because if you want to come up with obvious candidates for things that don't exist, like unicorns, yeah, you could say, sure, unicorns exist in your thoughts. And then, ah, oh, well, I didn't know that was, you know, I don't know that counts. <laughs> and if that counts, then almost anything counts. And yeah. I don't know, what does Heidegger think about this puzzle? Because yeah. this puzzle always struck me as a difficult one, which is when I define something, I always want to give an example of a contrast class, yeah. you know, yeah. that if somebody says, mm-hmm. and you say, well, it's a thing where people vote. And you say, well, no, because if they've all got a gun to their heads and they vote, it's not a democracy. Mm-hmm. So by the dialectic of coming up with examples and then coming up with counterexamples, we can come up with a definition. But we can't do that with being, can we? Nope. Because everything nope. we come up with, how could we come up with it if it wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, if a concept becomes too general, so general that it applies to everything, then it looks like it's lost all content. It becomes vacuous. Right. Because you don't have a contrast. And yet sometimes people say being exists of comparison, that I really like that person really exists fully and they flourishing. (laughs) And like the Neoplatonists sort of thought the lowest thing is matter and that Mm -hmm. barely exists. Right. And And the highest thing is the one, or maybe there's something even higher than the one because it's inconceivable, um, but the, the one is getting up there, and our lives are a journey from less being to more being. Uh-huh. So maybe that's just muddied the waters more. No, 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 not at all. I mean, the waters are muddy <laughs> to sure, begin with. So, sure. But that's in Plato, not just the Neoplatonists. Mm-hmm. Plato has uh, this notion of degrees of being. I think that idea kind of disappeared in modern thought. And I that think- could solve the problem. Sorry to interrupt. That could solve the yeah. problem of like, how can you define being if you per force kind of come up with an example of something that isn't? You could say, well, look at mud and look at a, a, the statue of Michelangelo's David. Uh-huh. The second one is more. <laughs> if you buy that, then you could be like, oh, okay, we can kind of understand that. Well, I, I think a lot of our ordinary intuitions, though, are something more modern, like that something exists or it doesn't. It's more like an on-off switch. Don't you have that intuition, too? Like, look, it either exists or it doesn't exist. And what is it to exist a little bit? But to me, that comes up against the crushing counter argument. We'll have no example of anything that doesn't exist. It's like, what do you think about a switch that's always on? Well, I don't think it's much of a switch, really. Yeah, well, but you might have that problem even if you think there are degrees of being. If you think there's just degrees of being, um, you're still going to have trouble with the notion that maybe there's some things that don't exist at all. I mean, would you want to say that everything is going to have a tiny little bit of existence? Or? Well, yeah, I think I do think that. But, oh. but So here's the thing. On one account, we're trying to define being or existence, and there's a B meter. And the B meter says either flips to yes or no. And whenever you point it to anything, it flips to yes. And you're like, well, that's a weird meter. (laughs) You might as well dispense with that meter. Well, you might as well have the word yes carved into the meter. uh, Yes. So that it's right. So right. So that that wooden meter that says yes all the time, that seems kind of like a non-starter. By the way, another strange thing about that meter is it could also say no and it would serve exactly the same function in your life, wouldn't it? That if you decided that nothing exists, it wouldn't change your life in any way, shape, or form, I, I don't think. Maybe you'd be more depressed if you were thinking about things that you like, but you might be happier about thinking about things that you don't like, that they don't exist. Um, okay. You might have to interpret no as meaning yes. You might have interpret no as meaning yes. Oh, or, but then if I had a machine that measured being, so it, it had a, uh, what do you call it, a, a needle that moved... And you pointed it towards a hole, and it, it hardly moved at all. Uh-huh. And then you pointed it towards the sun, and it moved a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> then I'd be like, okay, at least this meter is doing something for me. I, it seems also like on the Neoplatonic account, or the Platonic account, that is also a good O-meter at the same time as it's an well, is-O-meter, that, right? that may be right, because it's easy to say that things have different degrees of goodness. That makes perfect sense. You think that um, makes perfect sense. But the idea that things have different degrees of being, I think, is a little harder to understand. I mean, it was taken for granted, I think, for centuries in, like I say, Plato and the Platonic And So you uh, think it does make tradition. sense that you could point at a, um, a rabbit and a stop sign, and you could say which has more goodness? Oh, well, uh... <laughs> well, you don't think that, but I don't some think have that. everything is going to fall on a scale, but I do think some things are better than others. Like a rabbit or a smack in the face. It depends on if you, you're hungry. The rabbit it, is better. If you're hungry and you want a nice dinner, the rabbit, the rabbit is, better. is better than the stop sign. Uh, if you're trying to control traffic, uh, <laughs> stop sign is better than a rabbit. Oh, the rabbit would be the worst. 
at controlling traffic. Even if you said to everybody, stop when you see the rabbit, the rabbit could leave. And even <laughs> if you gave it a little orange vest and a sign yeah, to hold. I think it would it hop, was, it would hop no, away. No, it would wouldn't be, a be interested. Exactly. Um, so, <laughs> so, so comparative judgments of goodness, Yeah, we need that. We all do that. If you claim you don't make comparative judgments of goodness, you're on some kind of hippie trip, but you really are. Everybody makes comparative judgments of goodness. But we might not need to make comparative judgments of being. The non-being issue, though, is very serious because there's a way in which you can't point to non-existent things because they're not there to point to. If you if you name them and say, okay, unicorn or square circle or something like that, phlogiston or whatever you like... Um, yeah, somebody could say, look, it exists in the theory, or it exists, unicorns exist in fairy tales. Marcus Gabriel has defended this idea. I think he thinks just about everything exists because everything exists. Unicorns exist in fairy tales. Even non existent unicorns exist. So that's that's Minong's jungle, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Minong. Minong's jungle. Minong had a theory which uh, I seems to me is disastrous, although I can't say I really know the technical details of it, but it looks like a sort of desperate move, which is to say, look, there are both existent and non-existent objects. So, of course, there are unicorns. So of course, they don't exist, but there are non-existent objects. Right. This was disastrous because he believes that unicorns subsist. Yeah, that's right. He came up with a new nonsense word to yeah. solve the problem. <laughs> and it turns out when you come up with nonsense words, they don't really solve problems. I, because then yeah. you can then say, hey, Minong, what about non-subsistent unicorns? <laughs> yes. There's a well, non-subsisting unicorn. Yeah. And, and if he then feels that he needs to say it, it super duper subsists, then I don't think we're making any progress. Yeah, and I think Marcus Gabriel's view is something like that. The unicorns show up or appear in domains or contexts like fairy tales. What if I say human beings have the capacity to say yes and no? Mm -hmm. And if you say horses, what do you think? We can say yes and say unicorns. What about that? Uh-uh. I'm shaking my head now. If this were a video podcast, yeah, you you'd would be see able it. to see that in yep. all its glory. But I'm, if you try to take my word for it, I'm shaking my head. I'm I can saying confirm no. it. Yep, yep. I'm saying no. Yep. So we have the ability to say yes and no to various proposals. Yeah. And isn't that enough? That's something like what Bertrand Russell and I think it's implicitly in Kant, too. They've said really what you're saying when you say that there aren't any unicorns. You're really talking not about non-existent things. This is the problem. Maybe we should take a quick break and come back to the non-existent unicorns. Let's take a quick break. And we can, while we're taking the break, you can ask yourself, does a break exist? <laughs> right. <laughs> or does simply the, the pieces of the podcast on either side of the break exist? The absence of the podcast. Think about that, if you will, if you dare. Well, that was a good break if it was a break or not simply an absence of continuity. <laughs> if it existed, that's right. So It may have simply been an absence of continuity rather than a break. So one way to get around the seeming problem of uh, saying, well, if unicorns don't exist, then what are you talking about? You're, you, aren't you having a conversation about unicorns? And isn't there something you're having the conversation about? And you can say, yes, those are what have been called intentional objects. But one way to get around the idea that we can talk about unicorns, or Macbeth can see a dagger that doesn't exist, yes. is to say, look, you're not really talking about the non-existent object. What you're doing is talking about the concept of unicorn or dagger. And what you're saying is there isn't anything that falls under that concept. And that's a way to maybe domesticate this problem a little bit and say, you think you're talking about these weird objects, which are non-existent objects, which seems kind of crazy. All you're really doing is talking about the concept. In a way, your proposal sounds a little bit like that. What you're saying is yes or no to the question, does anything fall under that concept? I guess I'm trying to get out of intentionality and kind of take a Freudian approach that the breast is proffered to us if we're lucky enough to have been breastfed. Uh -huh. And then we can either accept the breast into our mouth or we can shake our head. Uh -huh. And yeah. at various times, things will be proffered to us and we can either take them into our mouth or we can shake our head. And hmm. and that's life, buddy. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, so here's, here's the... Here's the the direction I'd like to turn us in a little bit, which is to say okay. a lot of these kinds of questions we've been talking about so far from scholastic philosophy and Plato and the Neoplatonic tradition and some contemporary metaphysics, 
gets very abstract, mm -hmm. highly theoretical, extremely intellectualized, and it can drift away from what I think philosophers since Plato and Aristotle, and especially including, say, Heidegger, think is the original motivation of these questions, which is a sense of awe or wonder or puzzlement. We run up against something we can't think or we have trouble thinking, and that's a very human, uniquely human kind of affective attitude to have rather than, and in contrast to the sorts of highly abstract theoretical puzzles it can give rise to. This is not a way of just dismissing the abstract theoretical metaphysical stuff, because that's all intellectually extremely interesting. So I was holding these two plastic bags of white powder, yeah. and they had been my parents, or maybe they hadn't been, mm -hmm. and it raised the question of sort of like, yeah. where will I be when I'm the white powder, if I will be, and where did I come from? And, and also we were there under the blue sky, and what was that? Is that the kind of question that Heidegger is interested in? It's the kind of question, and I think actually dealing with the deaths of people puts the, us immediately in contact with this kind of puzzlement, because just at a very simple level, the sort of thing you're experiencing, maybe even more immediately if somebody has just died mm -hmm. and they're on their deathbed, if they've died, we want to say both of two things, which don't sound compatible. One is the person's now gone. Yes. And the other thing we want to say is, there he is. Yeah. So we're committed to the person's presence and the person's absence at the same time. Now, I don't actually think that that kind of paradox is going to have any purely intellectual or theoretical resolution unless you really bite some kind of bullet. Can you help the folks at home about this term of art in Heidegger, the metaphysics of presence? Um, because I know the metaphysics of presence is bad. And when I try and think about what it means, is it sort of means like, well, for something to be... It better be present, and if it's not present, it can't be. Is that is that the claim? That <laughs> yeah. Heidegger thinks people believe that and they shouldn't believe Heidegger that? Heidegger thought there were two different things that went under the word presence. In German, it's Anwesen. Okay. And I think he thought one version of that is not wrong or a mistake, which is to say when presence means, and you can say this in English sort of awkwardly, presencing, Anwesen, where you hear that as a noun, like a, a gerund noun, presencing, Things are by presencing, which means somehow or other showing up. And that means showing up mm -hmm. for us, so it is human relative. But there's another more specific sense, which I do think he thinks has been at the center of the metaphysical tradition, which is misleading, which is to think of presence as, first of all, pure presence without any concealment or hiddenness, like a platonic form in your mind. You grasp it and it's all there. But the other thing is the association with a temporal present as opposed to the past or the future, that for it to be present is for it to be present in a now and fully present. And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then yes, it's not fully being or not a paradigm case of something that's being. And I think Heidegger wanted to say, look, past and future are aspects of being and concealment as well as unconcealment, hiddenness as well as unhiddenness are aspects of the showing up of things. And But the metaphysical tradition has been focused on things somehow purely present to us and in the now rather than merely past or future. That's a really simple take on it. Okay, so the busy person listening to a podcast in their car who'd like to overcome the metaphysics of presence. Mm -hmm. um, how should they do that? It uh -huh. sounds like they should realize that there are some things that are yet to be and aren't anymore that still have being. But everybody knows this, right? I mean, in a way, I think what Heidegger's project is committed to is kind of reminding us of something we already know, but that itself has gotten buried beneath a lot of metaphysics that we've absorbed into our common sense. It's gotten buried or we buried it because it freaks us out? Uh, no, it's not the second one. It's not the second one. No, that's the motivated story. Like this is a motivated project of self-deception and we're running away from uncomfortable truths and things like that. Because I got the impression in the Parmenides, Heidegger's lecture on the Parmenides, mm -hmm. that he thought when we moved from truth as aletheia to truth as realitas, mm -hmm. or veritas, actually, yeah, veritas. veritas. When we moved from the Greeks to the Romans, yeah. that came with it that kind of Roman will to conquer and, yeah. and create an imperial system. Yeah. So I thought that was a motivated story. I think the Romans just, they're jerks. They want to conquer everything no. in order to feel control over it. And therefore, they can't understand that there could be things that aren't under their sway that still have existence. But that, I misread Parmenides. Well, uh, no, I don't think that Heidegger 
thinks that people choose these things. Oh, I'm not saying they choose it, but sort of like mm-hmm. the human beast as a collective project, certain things freak us out. So therefore, without anybody choosing, we sort of move in a direction of more control and more gamification and more imperialism. I think in being in time, part of Heidegger's story does sound like a, mm. a motivated story that because of our anxiety, we sweep things under the rug and run away from them and flee from our mortality and death and so on because they make us uncomfortable. And he's kind of reiterating Kierkegaard there. But it's already in conflict with something else he wants to say, which is that we are thrown into our understanding of things. And there can't be any prior motivation because that's just how things show up for us. But I thought that's like sin. We're already yeah. thrown into sin, but we're still kind of responsible for it. Yeah, well, yes, that's right. And I don't mean to say we're not responsible for it okay. because we have to take it up, but we take it up having been thrown into it. So it's a little paradoxical. Okay, that's a little paradoxical. But in the later Heidegger... But I, it's just paradoxical enough. You don't want to be less paradoxical than the phenomenon you're <laughs> that's describing. Good point. Yeah, exactly right. But in the later Heidegger, like the Parmenides lectures you're talking about were from the, what, early 40s, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. By that time, I think Heidegger's got a much much more, well, let's say, less voluntaristic account, okay. which which involves very little of anything like motivation. But he does think that some of these understandings are in various ways better than others. Okay. And some of them are more concealing. So the Roman understanding of things, it's not that the Romans had a reason to do this, like because they're jerks or because they're okay. scaredy cats or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that this a way of understanding things took over and became dominant. And now what is it? Well, it's the kind of thing that keeps you from seeing a lot of things. And so it's not great. Okay. And it can it can be subject to criticism, but not because people's motivations are screwed up. Got it. So what are some of the things that the metaphysics of presence is keeping us from seeing? Yeah, uh, I think he thinks it is keeping us from seeing that all kinds of really deeply important things can be other than immediately useful, immediately accessible or available to us on call uh for our convenience and for the sake of efficiency and optimization. This is his description of the technological world. So what I wanted to say a bit ago was that it's in our practices and in our practical common sense that our understanding of being really becomes clearly visible. It's how you treat things, how you deal with things day to day, minute by minute, and especially in a world full of little screens and social media and information. We want things present to us just in this metaphysical way, present now, fully, immediately, on call, at the click of a button. And he thinks we've forgotten, or we're forgetting, we're becoming less sensitive to, and yeah, we're not remembering the way in which things can be there and showing up or presencing by being, like, for example, memories of loved ones. Mm -hmm. They're not there in any way for you. I mean, how were your parents present for you, you know, when you were holding the ashes? They're in memory, they're part of your life, They're part of your horizons, and you'll never lose them. I mean, in a way, you never forget your parents as long as you live. But it's nothing like a styrofoam cup or something you can pick up off the shelf and make use of and monetize (laughs) or whatever. Right. So I think he thinks the danger is that we are losing our sensitivity to something we at another level know is real and present and has genuine being. So when you go camping or you're out taking a hike, you're away from your screens and so on, you're waiting for the sun to come up, you make a fire. I'm using all these woodsy, woodsy. non-urban phenomena sort of... uh, Well, you're a non-urban guy. You're from from the Great West. I grew up in Wyoming, yeah, so a little bit more out there, out in there in the sticks. So, yeah, the city always seems a little bit alien to me. And Heidegger, you know, had his cabin up in the Black Forest, which he liked to get away from the city. I don't want to put too much emphasis on the urban, rural, city, country kind of thing, because that's just one source of examples. But the danger is that we're forgetting all the ways in which things can be present to us, sort of by being absent and present at the same time, and also not being temporally present in the present. You know, I was thinking about my father saying that he wanted to be put out with the garbage. Mm. And I put his ashes in a in like a dry stream bed, mm-hmm. which is sort of... It's putting him into the ecosystem. Yeah. And it's a little bit like the garbage of the wilderness. And the garbage, being put out with the garbage, is a little bit like the stream river of a city. And I'm wondering whether giving ourselves up to systems that we can't control, if those systems are an example of the kind of being that the metaphysics of presence obscures or blinds us to. Yeah, partly. Can I ask you, what do you think your father was saying? What did did he mean when he said 
put me out with the garbage. Well, I think he meant, number one, don't treat my death seriously. Don't be brought down by my death. Mm. Because he said a very strange thing. When he, I first went to a funeral, I think of my mother's mother when I was 10. And he said, Eric, if anything scares you or confuses you by what you see today, I want you to remember that this is what people do to deal with their guilt for still being alive. Huh. Whoa. So I feel that certainly on a surface reading, one of the things my father wanted to say was, I don't want you to experience emotional pain or guilt uh-huh. or uh-huh. grief or sadness or regret about my death. Uh-huh. Just put me out with the garbage. Move on with your lives. I think that's one reading. Because on first hearing, it said. sounds like a pretty brutal thing to say, but he was trying to protect you to caring for you. I think he was using humor yeah. as a way of dealing with a sort of brutal reality. And I think he tended to formulate a lot of his views sort of in opposition to sentimentality, what he viewed as false sentimentality. Yeah. So I think he was sort of like, don't get all sentimental here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have, We can do a whole terrifying question uh, podcast about Eric's dad, and we can talk about my dad <laughs> at length. But, no, no, but I do okay. think that that's one of the things he was saying was, yeah. mm-hmm. don't be guilty. I mean, because I, I don't think he ever would would have been like, I'm in heaven, Eric. He certainly never spoke that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, John Quincy Adams, I heard... Some wrote some letter where he says, you know, next week you won't be able to see Don Quincy Adams. You can see the house that John Quincy Adams lived in, hmm. but John Quincy Adams will be far away, hmm. you know, because he was about to die. Hmm. But that's not how my dad mm-hmm. spoke. Uh, he occasionally said he did believe in the um, in the reality of cursed objects because he dealt with a fair amount of African clients. And he was frequently paid not in money, but in items, hmm. um, which had certain tax consequences that I guess we can talk about now because <laughs> everyone is gone. But... But um, he was like, if I'm going to get a gift of an African religious object, I want to make sure it's not one that has any curses. So he wasn't entirely a materialist. It's funny how people who are the least religious, the least spiritual, the least sentimental about these things sometimes reveal a sort of connection to something spiritual or religious like... um, uh, they'll, or they'll talk about a kind of magic, something that they really take seriously. It's not that they literally have a non-scientific superstitious uh, belief in a miracle, but they borrow the language of miracle and wonder and yeah, because we have a deep need for it. I mean, it, it really does serve a need. And I wouldn't say it's just to alleviate guilt or for mental health, but I think it's an instinctive cognitive kind of impulse to like to say about the dead person that they're still with us. Gary Wills in his book on St. Augustine, I think I think he dedicated it to his mother, and the dedication was uh, to her gone but with us. Interesting. Which I thought was really beautiful. Yeah. Because um, both, and how can it be both? But it is. So people who are gone but with us, that's an example of something that the metaphysics of presence obscures. Yeah. Um, I like the thing you said earlier that whenever something reveals itself to us, it also conceals itself. Right. Yeah. Heidegger thinks that's really essential, and there's, there's there really is no such thing as pure unconcealment. So he's got a metaphysics of presence and absence. Yeah, which and since he since he thinks there's a kind of truth which, unlike correctness or precision or accuracy, is the truth of being revealed or unconcealed or unhidden. Since he calls that truth, that's what allows him to say truth is always untruth because when anything is revealed, there's a concealment. I mean, in trivial ways, obvious ways that when you see an object. You don't see the backside. You don't see the inside. Mm -hmm. But everything is kind of, as it were, three-dimensional and only partly visible in order to be real. Yeah, I think he thinks that's essential to our understanding of being. I had a funny puzzle I was asking myself the other day because I was thinking about how every now and then I'll read something like Platonism and I'll just be like, that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The soul does exist. Mm -hmm. There is a meaningful world beyond time and space. We can go towards it, Mm. and I'll just buy it. (laughs) And I'll buy it for a short period of time, and it'll put me in a really good mood. And then I was wondering if I could go to a doctor and have a switch switched (laughs) in my head so that I would always believe that, would I do it? And I thought the answer is no. Yeah. (laughs) And it makes me think that maybe because, like, the only meaningful truth is one that also accepts the possibility that it could be false. And if, if you've had a brain surgery so right. that you're not capable of thinking it's not true, you're no longer thinking it's true either. Does that make any <laughs> sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, if it's a, if it's a switch 
or something that's automatic, then it's not even clear to me you're thinking it or believing it because it's like you see colors. Um, if it's just built into the hardware, you haven't arrived at that truth. You haven't considered it or accepted it. or Yeah, you have to be able to reject it or doubt it or think of it in a different way. And mm-hmm. its truth has to be an issue for you. Its truth has to be an issue for yeah. you. So, okay, so is being intelligible? Uh-huh. Right. We haven't quite got to that. Is the answer no? Well... And it's a good thing, too? Like, is that the answer <laughs> we're coming to? I, that That's the answer I would eventually give. But again, it's a long road to get there. So... Okay, well, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's go back to that rabbit with the traffic vest. <laughs> that's a good... Heidegger does have this notion of um, that philosophy is like wandering through paths in the forest that yeah. would have been laid down by people who cut wood but don't really go anywhere. Right. And right. I think it's an interesting question. Well, are there any roadsides? signs and like there are but they're on rabbits so the road signs are moving around <laughs> while see, we're right, moving around right right very good Holzwege with uh, yeah with rabbits so philosophers who have thought that being is intelligible uh, to put it that way. Yes. It goes back to Parmenides, really, even before Plato, the pre-Socratic Parmenides, who thought that being and thinking are the same. But can I say a wild thing about Parmenides, although it may be a waste of time, but Parmenides wrote a poem where a goddess says to him, I'm going to show you two paths. Yeah. And one of them is the path of truth. And the path of truth is that there's only one thing. Yeah. And then the path of opinion is that there are more than one thing. But there's two paths. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's a complete <laughs> mind effort there. Yes, um, it is. Yes. Anyway, so go on. Parmenides Good. said that's... that everything to exist yep. is intelligible. Um, right. And except maybe that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, at, but you get a similar view you know, much more recently, uh, 150 years ago or more, 200 years ago, uh, in Hegel, which is, again, that to be is just to be intelligible or to be thinkable. And um, there are various philosophers who embrace something like this, that uh, when we're talking about being, we're just talking about the same thing we're talking about when we talk about conditions of intelligibility or thinkability. And um, call that idealism or rationalism, absolute idealism, rationalism. That's the competing view, let's say. Okay. Now, one thing I want to tell the viewers at home, which is even scientific materialism is a form of this view, although it might claim not to be. Mm -hmm. Because it does say, like somebody like... uh, Dawkins, the selfish gene, that for something to be true, it has to matter for us in our scientific theory. Or for something to exist, it has to matter for us in our scientific theory. So therefore, for something to exist, it has to be intelligible. So they might claim they don't agree, but I think they really do agree with Hegel, strange as that sounds. I don't know what Dawkins thinks about the metaphysical issue, to be honest. I do Mm -hmm. think what Dawkins and others like him think is that to be genuine knowledge, it has to be scientific knowledge, that science just is knowledge uh, in its perfected or respectable form. And therefore, religious belief, uh, common sense, ordinary beliefs are imperfect by not being genuinely scientific. Right. But I think their metaphysics comes along in a very quick step, which is, and what it is for something to be real is for it to be in the best scientific theory. That is the view of some people. I think maybe Daniel Dennett thinks something along those lines. Yeah, that um, all we can be talking about is what falls under a concept or a theory or something like that. So you've got the intentional stance is a theoretical stance towards systems as intentional. There's a physical stance, which is the stance of the sciences which regard things as causal, material, physical, and so on. So that looks like a way of thinking about the being of physical or material things in terms of the scientific stance from which we understand those things. And these stances are not the stances of of a really cool dance performance. These are stances <laughs> that are designed for intelligibility. These are theoretical frameworks. We yeah. want, These stances yeah. are for understanding stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in a way, it's a pragmatic view, but I think that kind of pragmatism co- coincide with this rationalistic, idealistic metaphysics that all there is to being is being intelligible in some particular way, and for the scientific types, um, it means being scientifically intelligible. That is, in the context of an explanatory scientific theory. All right. Now, I think that's a kind of absurd constriction of our ordinary talk about knowing, being, being intelligible, 
I'm much more a pluralist about ways we can make sense of things, and science is one of them, but it's one that depends enormously on all kinds of other ways of making sense of things. And so I'm I'm not sympathetic to the scientific view at all, and especially not sympathetic if it comes along with something like absolute idealism or hyper-rationalism in metaphysics. But there might be unintelligible beings, or they all are, maybe. Well... I Yeah, there's two things. There's one is, could there be something that's completely unintelligible? I mean, completely unintelligible to us and therefore totally inaccessible to us. Like the Splock. Uh, exactly. The Splock, the famously <laughs> unintelligible Splock. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where I learned it. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, I mean, yeah, some, you know, uh, imagine this dialectic. If I say some things are completely unintelligible to us, you can imagine the rationalist saying, oh, yeah, like what? <laughs> And right. then I'm in the position of having to name it or something, and they say, see? Anyway, I mean, that's a kind of cartoonish dialectic, I imagine, in right. my mind. But I've had conversations, serious conversations that have that same dialectical structure. Um, and uh, so are there? could there be some things that are completely unavailable to us? I mean, I don't know why not. I don't know why not. It seems to me it would be amazing if there weren't any such things that were completely inaccessible to us cognitively. Well, one thing that I've um, noticed yeah. is that it's easy enough for us to see two other people and one of them says, uh, everything that exists is either good for America or bad for America. Uh-huh. And then the second person says, well, like what? And then the first person says, I can't think of anything. Uh-huh. <laughs> but nevertheless, they were right. You know? <laughs> you know? Like... Um, yeah. I mean, see, and the, you, uh, just to or, give... Or like when people were like, everything is either... Like all triangles have to be 180 degrees. And they're like, well, how could they be? I don't know, man. I don't know how they couldn't. <laughs> well, 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 shut up. But, but actually, the person who thought that there yeah. could be non-180-degree triangles was right. Yeah, to, they just hadn't imagined it yet. To give the rationalist you know, credit on the other side, you can imagine. I even hear the view, the voice in my head. I'm not sure whose it is. But I've, like I said, I've had these conversations where if I say, well, of course I can't tell you what things are completely inaccessible, inaccessible or unavailable or unintelligible to us because they're unintelligible. Now, the rationalist could say, well, then you are in no position to say, as you are saying, that there are or could be such things. And what entitles you to that if you're just waving your hands? And so you can see that, there, that it's not that the, the rationalist view is, is dumb. I mean, it's very powerful to say, look, if you're going to talk about what kinds of things there are, you have to make good on the kinds of things you're saying. And if you can't bring it to the table, then like you were just saying, shut up. <laughs> but but that's not my view. Right. But the, but in reality, the people who have said shut up, like like when the caveman was like, there's got to be something more than rocks and, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, woolly mammoths and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And the other one said, well, give me an example. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm a caveman. Right, I'm exactly. very conceptually limited by my yeah. caveman cognitive resources. And then it turned out there were galaxies and electrons. There and was all sorts of things. The caveman yeah. who said there must be Sonics. more to life was right. Exactly. And right. the other caveman, yeah. the caveman rationalist, was wrong. Exactly. But the other <laughs> thing is to think whether there are things that are and are intelligible to us, like we were saying before, partly revealed, unconcealed, and then partly unintelligible. And I think there's plenty of examples of that. I think the prime case maybe is ourselves and people. Like when you talk about a person, especially when you confront their mortality, their life, their death, are they gone? Are they here? Are they with us? Are they absent? Uh, We run up against paradoxes very quickly about how we think about ourselves. Let me go back to the, if you don't mind, the the deceased. uh, Okay. You know, that I think is the source of one, well, one view. It's not everybody's view, but in Hellenistic philosophy coming from Plato, uh, the idea that, look, you can solve this problem by saying, of course, they're gone in the sense that their soul is gone, but they're there because their body is there. Mm-hmm. And so mind-body dualism steps in in order to handle this apparent paradox. They're gone, but they're with us. I don't think that's going to be a very satisfying solution, but that's a real-life situation where you can feel the real human motivation for drawing a distinction like between soul and body. Okay. Let's talk about this some more after a break. Very good. Well, that was a good break. Um, So you were saying that the soul might be someplace else and the body remains. Well, that's Plato's view. But that seems sort of like a bit of a cheat. Yes. That 
that there was a kind of a cool profundity to recognizing that there's some aspects of our existence that are inherently mysterious. And for someone to come in with some theory and say, it's not mysterious at all. There's just these two kind of things. Right. Like, it seems like that's not great. I think in one kind of unsympathetic view of that, call it platonic dualism, is just that, that it's a kind of evasion of the phenomenon um, rather than confronting it. It's interesting how many, I've been reading recently about ancient views about uh, uh, life and death and the afterlife and the soul, and uh, they all kind of embody or represent some desire to have both of these things, like uh, that... So ancient uh, Hebrew idea about an afterworld, the, the you probably know something about this more than I do, about the Sheol, the sort of underworld place where the dead are. Right. Um, right. And it really is almost the same idea as grave. It's this underground place where the dead are. But it's not as if the dead are doing anything. They're kind of just there languishing. It's very unclear what that place is supposed to be. It's definitely not hell, as Christianity later conceived. It's not a place of punishment. And yet, they're there. And there are even some stories yeah. where they're sort of somebody goes down and sort of talks to them and gets them back up and so on, and you can sort of maybe revive them and so on. So it's impossible to completely get rid of the idea that even when they're gone, they're there. So some have just accepted that, that uh, the Ep- Epicureans, for example, just thought when you die, that's it. You're gone. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm sure they still had practice of, uh, practices of remembering the dead and maybe honoring them and thinking about them and holding them in memory, and they were present somehow. I Nobody's ever been very clear about how if you go to heaven and meet up with your uh, loved ones who are there already, how you will recognize them if they don't have faces, for example. Right, uh, right. There's a, there's a similar a superimposition of the body and the soul when you start imagining those scenarios. How did Socrates think he was going to, after he drinks the hemlock, sort of maybe have f- wonderful conversations with Odysseus and Achilles uh, in the afterworld if he didn't, you know, how would he know it's them? I mean, these are, these are you quickly get into unintelligibility when you push these uh, concepts very far. And so I think that's a way in which we will never be completely intelligible to ourselves or each other. And that's partly what makes us so precious, is that opacity and mystery. Well, what do you think is our best relationship to opacity and mystery? Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess as secular and frankly atheistic as I am, I think there is a kind of piety which is respectful and um, a kind of awe and wonder and reticence to draw too many quick conclusions or even to to know how to put it into practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heidegger, there's this famous thing that Heidegger said, um, questioning is the piety of thought. The piety of thinking is questioning. So I guess I like that. That's why I'm drawn to Heidegger. This and Now, what he means by questioning is not posing questions which have answers. Questioning is an attitude of wonder by the way, Plato and Aristotle both said this, that philosophy begins in wonder. And the wonderment of questioning, I think that's something that you have to really nurture and preserve and not want to get away from too quickly. I think in philosophy, I've heard some people say, yeah, philosophy starts in questioning. John Searle used to say, yeah, it starts in wonder. And then you have to roll up your sleeves and sort of hammer out an answer and the solutions. And in some cases, you might have to do that, or that's what's called for. But I think it's really good to try to extend the attitude or the attunement of wonder as far as you can without its being artificial in order to appreciate where philosophical problems come from. They come from these things that we will never completely understand. What's an example? Time is a good one. St. Augustine is great on this in the the 11th book of the Confessions. Yeah, what is time? I mean, you know, going back to this metaphysics of presence thing, uh, St. Augustine was already saying, look, if time has these three features, past, present, and future, it seems like I've got them all now, <laughs> right? which puts them in the present. And then does the present have a present past and a present present and a present future? And you pretty soon can't understand it. St. Augustine famously brings this, introduces this topic by saying, I know what time is until somebody asks me what it is, and then I don't know what to say. So time is a very good one. The self or the soul is a great one. So, so but let me ask you yeah. then a kind of a, a procedural question. Yeah. So questioning <clears throat> is the piety of thought. Yeah. 
But rolling up your sleeves and answering the questions like John Searle does, yeah. that's not the piety of thought. Not that, according to Heidegger. Yeah. Not according to Heidegger. And I think Heidegger was right. Yeah. Yeah. But but I I worry about I worry about people accusing me of being like superficial and glib mm-hmm. and and wanting to like sort of strike the pose of the of the person who's who knows the mystery uh-huh. like what do you think about time it's mysterious how is it mysterious so <laughs> even the fact that you asked me how is it mysterious shows you're not deep <laughs> enough for these waters young man uh, so so i don't like the kind of mystification no, as- no, aspect but i don't like the like running to come up with a bad answer aspect so what how do what are the practices of piety for questioning like how do we how do we keep the piety alive how do we keep the dream alive it's a balance i mean i really think there's no formula for it but um mm-hmm. there are people who are really good at it and you're absolutely right if you go around saying everything is mysterious you're a bore and it's like invoking the word beautiful when you're talking about art uh, in a way it's useless you don't you know you uh, if you just keep saying this one's beautiful and this one's beautiful too and look at this painting that's beautiful and notice how beautiful it is mm-hmm. you know you're in a way you're not conveying any information or saying anything informative even though you're not wrong i mean and if you lose a sense of the beauty of say music or painting or what you're interested in and you become just a technician yeah you will have lost the whole point of it but yeah you can only get so much mileage out of harping on this obvious but fundamental fact that What's important about these things may be something like beauty. I mean, that's just one example. But Mm -hmm. so I completely agree. And I think that's why when we think about the problem of being, we have to take pretty seriously, you know, fairly rational and problems oriented kinds of things people have said about it, even if we think at the end of the day, it's not going to produce some scientific theory that uh, eliminates all the mystery. Like, for example, I had this thought, one question up I think, in profundity from the question, what does it mean to be? But not quite as profound as that is the question, why is there anything? And in that question, you're just invoking the notion of is. But the question, as it's traditionally posed, is why is there anything rather than nothing? Mm -hmm. Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, I think it's worth taking seriously the suggestion, and this might be implicit in a kind of Parmenidean view. I'm not sure it was actually Parmenides. But one respectable view about that would be to say, oh, you think this is so mysterious. You think there's this mystery. But aren't you confused because you're you're pondering two different possibilities. One is there's something, and that's the actual apparent world. And that's instead of this other possibility, which is that there is nothing. And now it looks like, like you were saying, the path of truth and the path of opinion. It looks like you've got two things. Now you've got two what? Two possible universes, one in which there's something and one in which there isn't? Well, the one in which there isn't is something, after all. And maybe this should lead us to think that when we say there's something rather than nothing, that when we're saying rather than nothing, we're confused. We're not really saying anything at all. And that's to say that, of course, there has to be something, because there is no such thing as there being nothing. Right. Because, after all, that would be there being nothing and that would be like what would that be it would be an empty universe it's an empty universe well that's something right (laughs) anyway so i take that seriously i mean i don't think that we use the term of abuse who was it who used this term against colin mcginn and thomas nagel and mysterians mysterians yeah yeah so you know okay i'm a mysterian that's fine but we mysterians have to take pretty seriously real challenges to what might be a kind of illusion my own view is that even if it's an illusion It's an illusion which is central to the way we think and experience the world and therefore is very important and can't be dismissed like a mere theoretical mistake. Do you do you think it has something to do with like like Heidegger famously said, I don't remember where, that historical things only die historically, Mm -hmm. which Mm. which Mm. I take it to mean that if you're part of a human story, the only way to get out of that story is to write another chapter to it Uh so Uh maybe the respectful way is like we're all part of this story and i would say we all are heidegger said we westerners but i think that's a parochial view i would say we all are part of this story of humans on the earth asking questions and trying to answer them and the only way to move it forward is to respect the fact that a lot of other people have shed a lot of blood and tears and sweat yeah wrestling with these questions and to kind of pour out 
you know, pour out a, a brew for them when we're asking them. Absolutely. And I think that's another way to understand, like, even suppose that you accept the idea that some philosophy has genuinely dispelled some mysteries, which you, I can probably think of examples in which that's mm-hmm. true. There's a lot of philosophy, traditional philosophy, even if you think it's somehow outdated, which is more like an epic story that has shaped us yeah. by shaping our history and our culture. Uh, yeah, and we've come out of it because these ways of thinking are still, they're still traces or shadows in the way we think and we have a lot to learn by that even if it has come and gone and passed i think there's an interesting question and and this is going to be the last thing i'm going to say today but i think there's an interesting question about what's the mature way to relate to earlier stages in our life Mm -hmm. like how does a a grown-up father relate to like the passionate heartbroken teenager Mm -hmm. and i feel that the notion that you're going to disrespect the earlier stages in your life is an earlier stage in my life that I don't have much respect for. Yeah. In other words, I yeah. think that, yeah. that it's, it's something a little bit adolescent about viewing your earlier... Ch- it's adolescent to view children as idiots. It's more mature to view children as part of us yeah. who, we, uh, who we respect and are still living parts of us as adults i think that's really right and that's very moving i think i've i I think as i've gotten older i've made that switch i think when i was younger i really wanted to get rid of my past and my childhood and my immaturity and move on and shed my skin and be somebody new and i was embarrassed by my youth and my adolescence and so on and as i've grown older and had children uh and i and then i'd look back on myself it's a little bit more like seeing my children and worrying about them. Mm-hmm. I, I worry about my past self. I find myself right. thinking about, you know, the way I sort of plowed through my life, thinking, oh, my God, I hope he's going to be all right. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think we should try to take up that attitude about the whole collective cultural past. Um, uh, yeah. I I think I agree completely that it's a kind of self-care that you have compassion for your younger self. Yeah. Well, this was a good one, Taylor. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Have a good day. See you next week. See you next week. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.